Okay, y'all. I am, I am more excited about this talk tonight than I've been in quite some time. Um, I'm excited because we get to delve into Genesis. And Genesis is this unruly, ancient, beautiful, terrifying, uh, maddening, illuminating uh, collection of stories. It's at the very beginning of our Bible. Uh, and Genesis contains some of the most controversial <laughs> and some of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted and misapplied and most incredible stories that are in our Bible. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited to spend um, the next six weeks kind of exploring that together. I think at uh, earlier time in my life as a pastor, I would have been scared out of my mind to teach Genesis. And now um, I'm crazy enough to do it. So we're gonna have a good time together. Um, now, before we get into in the beginning, uh, there's some things that you need to know about this book. The first is that Genesis is not a standalone book. It's the first book in a series of five books called the Pentateuch that begins our New Testament. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, the main character and the main focus and the main story of the Pentateuch uh, focuses on Moses and the, the story of Israel coming out of slavery and into the land that God promised them. Really the crux of the story is in the three middle books, uh, Le uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Deuteronomy is sort of a bookend at the end that sort of recaps everything that happened. And there's some extra, there's some new things in there. And so then Genesis is sort of a prequel. If the main character of this five book series is Moses, the problem is Moses doesn't show up till Exodus, which we explored together last fall. So in a very real way, Genesis is a prequel, is the prequel of the Pentateuch. Genesis is to the rest of the Pentateuch what the Hobbit is to the Lord of the Rings series. It explains and sets the stage for the main story. You could read the Hobbit on its own and not need to read any of the Lord of the Rings and you would still be like, it's still a satisfying story, but it is so much better when you know and when you read, like there's this whole story that comes after and this was just setting the stage. If you have no idea what the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings is, that's fine. Um, I grew up in a house full of nerds, so I do. Uh, the next thing that's helpful to know about Genesis is that Genesis itself is not a single story. It's many stories that together and combined give this backstory about how the people of Israel came to be and how they wind up in Egypt in captivity for 400 years before Moses shows up. Genesis tries to sum up the moment of creation all the way to the Egyptian empire. And we're not exactly sure how long that is. Uh, but it attempts to cover this huge span of time in just 50 chapters. 50 chapters might seem like a lot to you. It is crazy how much is packed in to these 50 chapters. Uh, the last and most obvious thing that's important to know about Genesis is that it is an ancient book. And as is the case with pretty much any book of scripture, but certainly and especially ancient, ancient texts like this one, we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about it. Uh, we could spend time talking about the historical context and the, the anthropology and the archeology span and uh, the linguistics and the historicity, um, which is studying how well does this text fit with what we know happened in history based on writings and archeological finds that we have discovered. Uh, we could talk about all of that for hours and hours and hours and people have, 
And people have written volumes and volumes and volumes about every little aspect of this book. All of it, well, maybe not all of it. <laughs> Some guys get really esoteric, but a majority of those things that I just mentioned are important. All of them are important. Most of them are even interesting. We don't have time to talk about all of those things on a Tuesday night. We'll touch on some of those things, but we're primarily going to focus on stories themselves and what the message of that story conveys. We don't even have time to really talk about everything that's going to happen in Genesis. We're just spending six weeks. So we're probably just going to get through the first chunk of stories. Uh, but each week I'm going to teach a story or at least a portion of a story. And then we'll talk specifically about, we'll, we'll dive into that story and try to extrapolate out what it means what it meant then and what it can mean for us today. Whenever you read ancient literature, you have to first try to understand it through ancient eyes. We cannot read Genesis with 2022 eyes. It's not fair. It doesn't work. We have to try to put ourselves in the mindset of ancient Israelites, which is challenging, but hopefully if I do my job well, you'll start to see what's going on. We have to try to understand how its original audience would have understood these stories and then extrapolate out what that could mean for us today. That's going to be our task every week of this series. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the very beginning, the very first story, the story of creation and ask why, what is the point of this story? Why is it in our Bibles? Ancient writing was expensive. It was hard to maintain. You had to have someone who uh, was educated to write it down. You had to have a whole system to keep it together. Nothing was written down in excess. Everything was written down for a very intentional reason. Why is this here? Now, a few caveats. When I say stories, when I'm talking about the different episodes that happen in this book, or even like the, the title of this series, Genesis Stories, I am not implying fiction. We talk about stories a lot. When we're talking about the Bible, we talk about, you know, the, the story of Moses, or we talk about um, Jesus telling stories, or the, the story of Jesus and uh, the 12 disciples, or Jesus and the walking on, the story of Jesus walking on water. We call things stories all the time uh, that don't imply fiction, but for some reason with this specific book, because there's been so much controversy around it, when people hear story attached to it, they instantly think that I am inferring something. I'm not. Uh, there are the, the line between uh, history and historical fiction in ancient mindsets is blurred compared to ours today. Uh, but I'm mostly probably not going to really address whether these things actually happened or not. I believe all of them are rooted in some historical event. But really, we're going to be looking at what message would this have conveyed to the original audience so that we can try to understand what the message behind the story is, and then try to understand what God might be saying to us through that message today. Hopefully that makes sense. Another caveat, again, because this book is so controversial, there is widespread opinion on basically everything that I can say to you about this book. There are people that are on complete opposite sides of different minutia of this book and still within Orthodox Christianity. I am teaching what I think makes the most sense. There is lots of room for disagreement. You can disagree with me. That's perfectly fine and good. And I'm a huge nerd. So if you disagree with me and want to talk about it, all the better. I would love to talk to you about this stuff. Okay. So a lot of preamble. 
let's get into this actual story. We're going to read all of Genesis chapter one. Um, <clears throat> and we're going to read a little bit of chapter two as well. Something to know. I probably shouldn't tell you all this, but here we go. Chapters were not in the Bible originally. That is a way later invention that someone invented in uh, like medieval times, not the restaurant, uh, like the actual medieval times. And um, uh, they didn't always put them in the right spot. I'm really thankful for them because imagine trying to tell someone about part of Genesis, this 50 chapter thing, and not be able to tell them a chapter and a verse. That would be impossible. But sometimes they put chapter breaks in the weirdest possible places. And the first time they had a chance to put a chapter break in the Bible, they put it in the wrong spot. So we're going to read the first three verses of chapter two at the very end of this. And you'll see like, why did they cut out the seventh day of creation? Why did they do that? I don't know. Again, medieval times. All right. Genesis one, starting at verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and he called the, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. We're going to pause here for a second because that second day might not make any sense to you. What on earth just happened there? God split the vault the waters above and the waters below. So uh, I have this picture. This is how, I know this is kind of hard to see, but this is how ancient people conceived of the cosmos. There was this idea that in the beginning, there was just this primordial chaotic ocean and to make space for earth and sky, that ocean had to be split vertically so that now there is literally this dome. You can think of like a snow globe that is holding water above the earth and then the uh, sky and then the earth are floating on the deep, which is called the, the abyss, the chaos. This, this is actually a perfectly reasonable conception of reality when you have nothing to go off of except for just observing the natural world. It helped explain why the sky is blue like water. It helped explain why sometimes water falls from the sky. Um, they thought the world was flat and stuck between two oceans. Now, when you think of this, if you're anything like me, you think of like, when I tell you that they thought that the earth was just a flat disc between two oceans, you probably think of that floating in space. They didn't do that. They didn't even know what space was. It was literally just this. A curved round earth wouldn't come about in human consciousness until like the 200 BC, 200s BC which is at least hundreds of years later than this is being written or edited. Um, but we know that this is not reality, right? So what is this doing in our Bible? Like, why is this here? Why are they telling us something that is clearly that we know now is not true? Um, 
We're going to get more clear on exactly why this is in there in a bit. But I wanted to stop here to point out that this is how literally everyone at that time conceived of the world. This is a great example of how God speaks to us in ways that we understand. At the time, this is what people understood. God doesn't need us to have a perfect understanding of everything in order to get his message across to us. Thank goodness. All right, let's keep going. We're picking back up in verse nine. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth. Just make a mental note. It's very interesting. We'll come back to this. Why did he tell us what the sun, the moon, and the stars are for? He hasn't done that with anything else. Why did we need to know that? Continuing on. And it was so God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teeming with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so God made the wild animals according to their kind, the livestock according to their kinds and all the creatures that moved along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and, every, and other, every, over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. 
And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And then someone thought, this is where chapter one should end. But it goes on. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. That's it, baby. As the whole story of creation, according to Genesis one, what is the purpose of this? Have you ever stopped to think like, why is that in there? Why was this written down? Why was this preserved through the years? Was this to give us information and understanding of how the origins of the cosmos came about to literally tell us how the universe was created? I think there's, there's, there's a problem if we approach it that way. Well, there's many problems. Um, one of them being the firmament or the vault that we already looked at this idea that there's water above us and water below us that we know is just, that's not, that doesn't align with reality. But on top of that, if if you're approaching this as this being information and like a step-by-step guide about how God created the the cosmos, the days of creation make no sense if you lay them out and, and look at them literally. So here are, the seven days of creation, the six days and the seventh day of rest. Day one, light is separated from darkness. There's a problem here. It's not till day four that the sun and the moon and the stars are created. How can light be separated from darkness if there are no sun or moon or stars? On top of that, Day one through three, at the end of each of those days, we read there's evening and there's morning, the first, the second, the third day. How do you have evening and morning without sun or the moon? Day three, plants show up. How do you have plants without the sun? (laughs) They need that. There's all sorts of problems when you look at things this way. But watch what happens when you do this. Somewhere along the way, someone much smarter than me realized days one through three correspond perfectly to days four through six. So on day one, God separates the darkness from the light. Day four, he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day two, he creates the sky and the ocean. Day five, he creates birds and sea creatures. Day three, he creates land and plants. Day six, he creates land animals and us, humanity. There's a literary device going on here. And it's actually like really fascinating and creative. And there's two different ideas of what this is. There's this idea that, that what's being conveyed here is that God creates space and then God fills it. So the first three days, God is creating space. And then the second three days, he's filling the space that he has just created. That's one theory, but there's this other thing in in ancient literature and especially in uh, Jewish literature called recapitulation, which is where you, you tell a story 
and then you retell that exact same story, but the second time you go into more detail. Each time you zoom in, each time you tell the story, you zoom in further and further. If you notice days one through three, the descriptions are pretty short. Not a lot happens. Days four through six, the descriptions get longer and more detailed and more detailed. In fact, you can actually see this uh, at the very beginning. Verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the whole story. That's it. And then we zoom in and we tell the story again, days one through three. And then we zoom in and tell the stories again, days four through six, more detail each time. Okay, so then what? <laughs> Why? Why is this in there? Why is the narrative constructed this way? Still, what is the point of the story? Why is it here? I think to understand Genesis 1, to understand most of Genesis, we need to understand the context. We need to understand the people that this was, who wrote this, who were inspired by God to write this, and who received it the people who would have heard this for the first time. We need to understand this narrative through ancient Israelite eyes. I think when we do this, it makes a ton of sense. Israel was constantly being inundated with other cultures ideas. They were constantly being tempted to abandon their faith and worship false gods, uh, to take up the religion of neighboring kingdoms. This became more and more true as neighboring kingdoms tried to conquer them, especially the Babylonian empire when it eventually did conquer them and kidnap most of their population and bring them back to their country for multiple generations. All that time, the Israelites are being threatened with losing their identity, with being assimilated into Babylonian culture, uh, losing their identity and stripping their faith. Israel's identity as God's people is under constant attack. When you put Israel in that context and in the context of its neighbors, and then when you start to explore what their neighbors thought about creation and gods and humanity, when you start to put their stories of creation of the cosmos next to Genesis, the first eight chapters of Genesis, you start to see some really interesting things. And what you start to see is that in, in Genesis one, and then continuing through chapter eight, embedded in this narrative are things that we completely miss today, but would have been glaringly obvious to the original audience. Embedded in this narrative are these hints and like shots at other cultures and other cultures' notions of the cosmos, like the Sumerian culture, the Egyptian culture, and, and primarily Babylonians. For instance, this is gonna get a little nerdy, but just hang with me. Scholars have noted that Genesis 1 takes the same shape and themes and form as an ancient Babylonian story called the Enumu Elish. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but those are real words. Similarly, Genesis chapters 2 through 8 look a whole lot like this other ancient story called the Epic of uh, Atrahasis. Atrahasis. I practiced that so many times. And it, it just failed me. Atrahasis. It doesn't matter. They, they mirror these two ancient stories while also containing challenges towards Sumerian culture and Egyptian ideas like I talked about. And then they also have ideas that are completely unique to uh, Israel. Why is that? What's going on here? Why do these look the same as their neighboring cultures? Uh, well, let's, let's, let me give you a few examples of what I'm talking about here. Um, <clears throat> to get an idea of what I mean, let's consider some of these things. The first is this idea of uh, at the very beginning, 
we're told that the earth was formless and void and the, the spirit of God hovered over the deep. In most ancient cultures, the way creation starts out is that there's just chaos. The deep, there's this ocean of just chaos. In many cultures, chaos, that ocean is a God or gods. And the creator deity often has to come along and subdue chaos. They have to literally conquer and kill chaos. In our creation story, chaos is completely at the will of God. There's no fight. There's no violence. It just does what God says. God completely conforms the deep, the abyss to his will. Another example of this is that idea of the firmament, the vault, the waters being separated. I think the reason why this is in here is because in Babylonian culture, there's a very significant story about the deep, that, that god of chaos, goddess of chaos called uh, Tiamat, whose son, Marduk, who is like the head god, the creator god, he has to kill his mother in order to create creation. He literally rips her in half. I don't know why. And then he uses half of her body to create the top dome and the other half of her body to create the bottom dome. And so this story is reappropriated by Israel. And they say, it, that's not what happened at all. It's just that God put up the firmament. Didn't have to kill anybody. It's just what he did because he's in control. Creation was not born out of violence between the gods. Creation was born out of loving intention by the God. There's another significant detail. I'm not even going to get all of these, but um, I don't know if you noticed when we talked about the sun and the moon being created, the words used are the greater light and the lesser light. The words, the literal names, sun and moon are not used in Genesis there because those words were the exact same words that were used in other cultures that were the names of the gods associated with the sun and the moon. They very intentionally did not say those names, but instead said, those aren't gods at all, at all. our God created them. On top of that, he created the stars. And then we're told, I, I told you to take note, we're told why the stars, what the stars function as. They're to tell us the time. They're to tell us the seasons. That's on purpose. That detail is on purpose because in so many other cultures, even today this persists, people believed that the stars were deities that were literally controlling their lives. And depending on the positioning of the stars meant that they were being controlled. This story says, no, that's ridiculous. God put them up there for us so that we could tell what time it was in the year. Lastly, the last example that I'll give you is humanity, the creation of humans. In so many ancient accounts, uh, other creation stories from other cultures, humans are created by accident. Sometimes they're the collateral damage of the fight between the gods. Sometimes they're created as an afterthought. It's just like, uh, and then the gods created us. Cool. Sometimes they're created as these lesser beings that are just slaves to do the work that the gods don't want to do to perpetually serve the gods forever. And then you compare that with 
the creation story that we have in our Bibles that said that humanity is the pinnacle of creation, that we are created as images of God. We are blessed. We are given the highest royal status. We are placed to rule over creation as God's representatives. That's a very foreign conception of the status of humanity in the ancient Near East. So over and over and over again, this story of Genesis 1 takes other cultures, existing narratives and ideas about how the universe works and it just turns them on their head. Time and time again, this, this story in Genesis 1 attacks competing ideas about reality with messages about who God really is and who we really are. The story in Genesis 1 is constantly pushing back against these false notions of reality that were constantly encircling the people of God, protecting Israel and its understanding of its identity. So why do we have this story? The point is not to give us info about the origins of the cosmos. The primary purpose of this story is to tell us about God and us. To remind Israel that God and God alone is the creator. That God and God alone is the tamer of chaos. That God and God alone created all the incredible things we see. That God and God alone created life. That God and God alone created humanity with intention and with love and placed us at the highest status to care for and steward and have dominion over creation, not the other way around. And because of all these things, the final reminder is that God and God alone is worthy of worship. That is the central message of what's going on here. You hear all these other stories about these gods and the things that they have done. They compare nothing to our God. That's what's being conveyed here. So that to me begs the question, what would Genesis push back against if it were written today. If God inspired someone today to write the origins of the cosmos as a way to remind the people of God and protect their identities against false notions of reality, what would it push back against? I think there's a number of things, but the things that instantly popped out to me were, were how about the idea that the, the universe is a cosmic accident, that we're just here by chance, there's no purpose or meaning in creation. It's just what happens when given enough time. I think it would push back against the notion that, that you are just a flesh bag of meat and bone that somehow accidentally or by chance gained consciousness. That there's no purpose or meaning to your life. It's all just random chance. I think it would push back against the notion that humanity is a scourge or a cancer or a blight on creation. I think it would uh, push back against the idea that uh, we are to just ravage the earth, but instead that we are to steward it wisely and care for it, but that we are the pinnacle of it. I think it would push back against any notion that human life is anything less than the crown achievement of creation. I think it would do this and, and it would do all this and emphasize it in ways that speak to us today that we immediately would understand that all of this, all this universe, all this creation, all of it was spun together by this inconceivable being by love itself. 
to reflect his glory. And then to top it all off, that being that is above our comprehension created us, created you, created me, to be his emissaries, his, his representatives, his reflection in this vast universe he created, to be the very crossroads where heaven and earth, where creator and creation meet. None of this is here by accident. You are not a mistake. You are not the product of mere chance. There is purpose and order and meaning sewn into every fiber of your being. Who you are, how you interact with the world, how you reflect the creator to creation, all of it matters. Let's pray. God, uh, thank you for, God, thank you for ancient stories that remind us of who you are. Thank you for ancient stories that help us pause and stop to think about how insanely incomprehensible and beautiful and unlikely <laughs> creation is. There are so many things that are terrifying and horrible and awful that happen in the world that it is easy to lose sight of the goodness that you have infused into everything, including your children who do terrible and wonderful things. God, I pray that you would continue to speak to us and, and remind us of reality to remind us of the intention and purpose and order and meaning that you have put into everything, especially us and our lives and the ways that we interact in the world. And God, I pray that we would be inspired to be more loving and more accurate reflections of who you are to your creation. We love you, God. Amen. <laughs>